I don't know. I wonder why there's always a lag now. Who knows? Uh, I don't know. When I was in the mid journey, uh, like gr- discord that that discord is the laggiest discord i've ever been in in my life they it is seriously like just for an inline like text message it is at least a second or two of delay it's like dial up in there it's like yeah. 128k it's the lawless lands of 2001 and you have a free internet connection that you had to go to the library to set up by bringing home files on a thumb drive <laughs> <laughs> And now you're on Discord. I'm just kidding. It's 2001. You're playing StarCraft 2 in your parents' basement. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I love playing StarCraft 2. Speaking of things, uh, or it would have been regular StarCraft at that time. Yeah, I I was going to say, StarCraft 2 came out way later. (laughs) I'm thinking, I get, because it was Diablo 2 and StarCraft 1 at that time. StarCraft 2 is only only like 20 or 25 years old, not like StarCraft 1, which is almost 30 years old. (laughs) Which is 55 years old. It's almost public domain. (laughs) StarCraft was released in 1965. (laughs) Just backdating like PC games in order to make ourselves seem even older. <laughs> <laughs> you kids remember a little game called Tetris? It was released in the Roaring Twenties. Um, <laughs> oh, I love it all those it? games. It, w- <laughs> it was not. Um, but speaking of things that I like, uh, stoppage everybody your favorite labor podcast and this is movie time the third installment and uh, my name is john i'm dan and i yeah yeah i'll be i'm lena yeah all right <laughs> and the three of us would like to thank our patrons so very much for contributing to the show it really goes a long way towards keeping this entirely listener supported show going if you're not in the discord in there if you're not in the discord get in there it's completely free if you are of course you're a patron you're listening to a bonus episode and so if you want stickers message us on patreon if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or you can leave one of these movies we're about to talk about a five-star review and mention our show because they're both incredible movies i think i said this on the last movie time episode but every time we watch movies for this series they become my two new favorite movies (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh i mean i think this was this one was a little different because like the first episode we were just like okay what are like two of the most obvious like classic Mm -hmm. like labor movies we can come up with and we're like okay well, we really want to do Pride for the second one. Let's pair it with another British one. So we've got our British episode. And then this one, I was just, it was just like, okay, well, like, what is, like, Lena's most favorite recent uh, movie? And then, like, one of the ones that I was, like, dying for us to cover since we mm-hmm. even started talking about this. So, uh, so you conspired well, to make me watch two movies with subtitles, which are much harder <laughs> to watch on my phone while I'm working. <laughs> Yes, I mean, like, and I don't know if I would uh, characterize the second movie as my favorite recently, uh, because it is actually fairly difficult to parse, especially some of the beginning parts. But um, but it was it was super interesting. And I think it really highlights 
something that we're going to talk about later, and I'm not going to continue. Anyway, let's talk about the first movie. I mean, everybody knows that your favorite movie, everybody knows your favorite movie is Aqua Teen Hunger Force colon movie film for theaters, Lena. That's this right. Public <laughs> I, no, I'm not going to state that unpopular opinion. Just uh, making the end music of this uh, linoleum knife. Yeah, it's fine to hate Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Even people who like it it. hate it. uh, It's just, it's just like whatever. Some of those like gritty things. Like as a kid, I got nauseous watching Invader Zim. So I, fair enough. You know, to be fair, I think we all got nauseous watching the organ harvesting episode. Oh, Uh, (laughs) true. But anyways, uh, not to not to derail us and start talking about (laughs) cartoons. Right. Yeah, we got our our first first movie, movie, The Organizer. Yeah. The Organizer, which is a, a truly incredible movie. And I got to say, uh, I, I loved hearing all of the Italian and the various other languages spoken in Italy uh, throughout this film, uh, which is a, a pretty interesting one. It, just to give a quick summary of how the movie goes, spoilers ahead, I suppose. Uh, it takes place in the Porta Souza district of Turin in the late 1900s, where workers at a textile mill who are working 14-hour shifts for incredibly low wages are just scraping by. One day, towards the end of a long, grueling shift, one of the workers who had started to fall asleep at his station got his hand caught in a machine and was grievously injured. In response, the workers form a committee, which is led in part by the big gregarious Pautasso, to speak with management and demand a shorter workday to prevent future accidents. I loved Pautasso in this. He was a lot of fun. Uh, the managers with uh, refuse, so the workers plan to stage a walkout an hour early on their next shift. But when management discovers this plan, workers lose their nerve and Pautasso is left alone to be punished for ringing the whistle early. That evening, Professor Giuseppe Sinegaglia? Sinegaglia. Sinegalia, an underground labor organizer who had been fleeing the police in Genoa, arrives in the neighborhood. Uh, when workers are holding a meeting to decide how to proceed following the failure of the walkout, Sinegalia agitates for the workers not to simply uh, hold a walkout, but to go on strike for their demands. The workers take his advice, and when they do strike, the factory management attempts to bribe them to end the strike by only providing amnesty for the previous walkout, which the workers' committee refuses. So the management brings in scabs from a nearby town where hundreds have been laid off. Uh, They arrive on train, and Sinegalia attempts to reason with them, but an enormous brawl breaks out between them and the striking workers when the scabs actually start attacking Professor Sinegalia while he's trying to talk to them. The police track down Sinegalia and separate him from the workers as he is fleeing from them. After about a month of being on strike, these workers are ready to give in, thinking that the situation is hopeless, uh, thanks to a little strategic meddling from one of the managers, when Sinegalia rushes back to their meeting, risking arrest on a very cute little bicycle and implores them not to give in and to fight for the factory they spend their entire lives toiling in. In fact, he uh, inspires them to march on the factory with the goal of occupying it, but they are in turn confronted by the army who fire into the crowd, killing a young worker, Omero. The film closes on a similar scene as it began with the workers trudging to the plant in the morning, uh, Sinegalia having been jailed for his role in the strike and another worker forced to flee, becoming a traveling organizer himself and uh this one was really 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 good and i gotta say a lot of parallels to mate one i noticed uh, just in the pacing tone and a lot of the events that transpired yeah so just to give a little bit of historical background for people on this one uh yeah so this is in like it's not 
specifically, they don't give a specific year when the movie takes place, but the, the late 19th century, early 20th century period that this is covering, it was really the, this is being in Turin is really covering the center of the rise of industrial capitalism in Italy, because there was a really strong divide between the industrial North and the agricultural South, which we'll talk about in a bit, because it comes up in the movie. Uh, and so like Turin and Milan in, in North Italy were the first cities to really heavily industrialize. And of course that came brought with it, the early trade union and socialist organizing movements in Italy as well. And later, like fought like, you know, a couple decades in real time after the events of this movie, those cities would be the center of the red days in Italy, like in the, the years following World War One, 1920, 1921, when workers would actually occupy factories all over Turin and Milan and other cities in, in north of Italy and form workers committees in order to take these over and almost really became the opening stages of an Italian socialist revolution. Uh, unfortunately, of course, that did not happen. Um, but it's important to point out that it's like the, the, this movie being set in Turin is, is not an accident. Like Turin is, was very much the heart of that early organizing movement in Italy. And one of the things that, uh, you know, in, in researching some of the production for this afterwards, uh, I really thought it was interesting that the director, Mario Monicelli, said that the goal, one of the goals of his film was to meet what Antonio Gramsci said was, quote, the challenge of modernity, to live without illusions and without becoming disillusioned, Wow. Uh, end quote, which I'm like, first off. I want to see more movies from uh, directors who quote Gramsci as like the inspiration for why they made their film. Uh, But also I think that's a really incredible way to summarize what I think so many artists try to do with things like socialist realism. It's like to show the real conditions of the working class with all the awful stuff that comes with it but in a way that doesn't make people, you know, hopeless or nihilistic. And, and, and the movie actually premiered not at, you know, Cannes or, or it like the Berlin film festival or any of the like big, you know, movie festivals that you would, you would think for a lot of like major movies, this premiered at the 35th Congress of the Italian socialist party, (laughs) uh, which is pretty cool. And actually, I mean, that, that becomes a bit easier to understand when we find out that the movie's only actually called the organizer in English because it, it's its name in Italian, i compagni, or the comrades, uh, was considered a bit too uh, socialistish for which is, uh, for the American audiences in 1963 when this was released. Which is hilarious, considering quite a bit of the film features dialogue where people are accusing each other of being too social. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Well, and I mean, I think that the the not being disillusioned is is really an interesting thing because the ending of this movie is basically in failure. Uh, like the workers did not succeed, but there is, I think, there is a message at the end that speaks to how these struggles are essential to the greater struggle, and and we kind of learn through these sorts of things, and not to to, you know just assume that battles that are you know not perfect victories are not worth doing i thought that that was kind of an interesting point that i at least got from it 
Yeah, I mean, w- one of the things I really felt was like, even for all of the setbacks uh, that they faced, it's like a lot of these workers are going to come out of this situation having a much more elevated class consciousness yeah. and are probably going to participate you know, further in different kinds of labor demonstrations, political organizing, political education. I mean, uh, there yeah. was a really, really big focus on the actions of teachers in this mm-hmm. film as well, which I thought was really critical and I, I think is something that... Uh, you know, if if you are a socialist or a labor organizer, it's important not just to uh, try and communicate with people who are already teachers, but also to treat uh, your work as a, a, a form of teaching or to incorporate, you know, versions of teaching as well. Yeah, and I know we say this a lot, but what you're highlighting there is a very important line, which is unions are the school of communism. Like we learn yeah. struggle in, in a lot of these these processes. Yeah, I I actually love the way that the movie portrays the the teacher who's because one of the scenes in the in the film is because these workers are working at a textile mill, which of course that's got you know so many layers of history to it itself mm-hmm. because like you know we did a whole episodes on on the history of early textile mill strikes in the U.S. and textile mills were really like that early site of both the development of industrial capitalism and therefore the development of the class struggle under capitalism. And so these workers who are working 14-hour shifts, uh, I think from just the clock, like during the the movie, I've, their shifts, I believe, were from 6.30 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. Um, and so, like, you know, the one of the big pivot points of the movie is when that one worker gets his arm trapped in the machine and loses his hand because he'd been falling asleep because he'd been at the machine for 14 hours. And so when we see the workers trying to go to basically night school to try and learn just to read and write, because again, this late, late 1900s or uh, sorry, late 1800s, late 19th century, um, the majority of these workers are illiterate. And they, they point out during that scene that if you can't write, you can't vote in Italy during this period. And so, you know, there's this reformist angle of what the teacher's trying to do. He's like, look, if the workers are going to have a voice, we have to be able to vote for people in parliament. And for, for us to be able to do that, we have to be able to write. So you have a lot of workers who, again, they're working 14 hour shifts and yet voluntarily they're still coming at night. And a lot of them, you know, they fall asleep during the class, but they're showing up to try and learn because it's really important to them. And, so like, you know, the, the, the teacher gets frustrated with the people like showing up late or falling asleep. But I love the fact that the movie isn't treating the workers as stupid because they show like the, the one of the guys in the class who's come a little bit further than some of the others and being able to write He's like, all right, the, the teacher gets frustrated. He's just like, all right, fine. You uh, go practice like what you've learned. Go write on the blackboard while he's like having a conversation. And then he goes and looks back at what the guy's written. And he just wrote death to the king. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. Well, and the, the teacher immediately is like, gentlemen, I share your sentiments, but part of education is learning <laughs> restraint and self-control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't know. I think that guy is on to something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, shifting gears just slightly, one of the things that I was really impressed with in the film is the portrayal of the machines, the steam looms mm-hmm, that were mm-hmm. being, that were like basically attached to this long rod that spanned the entire building and they were all in line. And the, I, I can't imagine the amount of setup that it actually took to recreate those conditions. 
I, I mean, I bet that they were probably still at least, you know, uh, less retired than they would be in today's date to be able to be found. But the the actual ways, and I mean, they were in shambles. I mean, you saw the machines in the movies where they were like clearly like rickety machines, and and I mm-hmm. mean, it allows you to to believe, and I mean, I kind of do that. That's actually how the machines appeared at the time. I'm sure. And I, I think the way that the machines were laid out and especially like the centralized industrial nature of it and the way that they all relied collectively on this one supply of steam power was a really interesting kind of diagram of the way this type of like industrialization and the type of, of management and structuring power that comes along with it develops because it's like Today, with the internet and with everything being reliant on emails and, you know, you can go to a gas station and buy 16 different adapters for the same phone, it can sometimes be a little bit less clear where... Or, or, or rather, what um, what elements of a situation you need to follow to figure out like who's really in charge and how are they maintaining their control? But when you look at like a, an industrial, you know, steam loomery, it's undeniable. <laughs> like you know, it, it's really quite obvious. And and I think it's important. I, I think people get tired of like historical depictions of labor, but I think historical depictions of labor, especially right around the time that this kind of capitalism was coming into effect, are really critical because they show those contradictions uh, sometimes at, those contradictions are sometimes at their most heightened when they are brand new. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things that I really appreciated about the portrayal of this was it showed both the natural inclination of the workers being trapped in that awful situation to want to improve it, to, to fight back against the system. But it also showed, you know, the way that this sort of unguided spontaneous action, Mm -hmm. even when completely correct in its intention, uh, like doesn't always necessarily work out that great because like the workers get together and they're like, look, this, the guy got hurt. We don't have accident insurance. We have to take up a collection to pay for this guy's, you know, uh, expenses and and for his family to be able to eat while he's injured. And like, we already don't have anything ourselves. <laughs> like, why do we have to pay for all this? And so they're like, okay, we need to have a protest. We need to demand an, a shorter shift so people don't get tired and don't fall asleep, you know, and get hurt. And so we'll do, you know, uh, we'll do a one hour like walk off and and they and you see them like putting it together and it's not it, it's like half organized kind of mm-hmm. where like no one there's there's no clear direction it's it's just sort of a few people getting together and having a conversation and eventually you know they try to draw names from a hat on who's going to pull the the whistle and of course ev- half the guys wrote an x because they're illiterate and so eventually Potas was like whatever I'll do it because he's mm-hmm. like you know one of the strongest willed of of the workers but that again, it doesn't end up working out. He gets scapegoated for it. The the workers kind of lose a bit of their nerve. But again, it's not because like the workers shouldn't have protested. They just needed to do a little more planning around it. And when like Sinigali is able to help them, not tell them what they have to do, but be like, "Look, you're right. 
you're absolutely right to be mad at this. And in fact, you're more right than you even know. He's like, you, you shouldn't just be getting a one hour less. You should have accident insurance. You should have all those things that you have said you think you should have. You should. They're mm-hmm. not ridiculous demands. You should make all those demands. And it's, it's more that he's providing the encouragement than he is like, you know, coming out from outside and putting ideas in their head. And I thought that was a really good portrayal. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying is really important because I think um, the professor did like two really critical things. Like one, in like you were saying, in contrast to Pautasso, who good-natured and well-intentioned fellow though he was, kept kind of trying to step in and be like, "I'm the leader. I'm taking yeah. charge. I'm the big guy." You know. Whereas the professor was much more trying to act as kind of like a facilitator who wasn't trying to be in charge of anything. He was just trying to help make sure everybody's ideas were organized and well-planned and coherent, and that they were actually trying to achieve what they wanted but the other thing i think was really interesting was when they proposed something that he thought was foolish instead of just saying that's dumb that's bad instead you should do what i do he was socratic with them and instead said okay well let's take for granted that that is what we should do let's follow that out to its natural conclusion and examine the consequences and then among themselves the workers you know once seeing this kind of reasoning started to change the way that they believed about something and i think that that's really really critical if you want to reach out to people who maybe are hostile to this kind of organizing if you're thinking the present day or back at this time maybe had just never experienced anything like this in the first place yeah absolutely i mean there's there's so much in here. I also like it because it's funny because you tell people like this is a movie about you know organizing in a, a, a textile mill in late 1800s Italy. Uh, and I think there's people will be like, oh well, so this is just gonna it's it's only gonna talk because you, you know with some of the uh, the liberal concepts about this will be like, oh this is only gonna talk about class. It's not gonna talk about any other issues. But this oh, yeah. I really appreciate because this immediately immediately upon when they start deciding to organize questions of of sexism come up questions of of racism sort of of a type come up mm-hmm. like even though this is because all there's like prejudice against like southern italy and right. sicilian people yeah, yeah well, it's, and, it's really anti-african it, and anti-arab racism yeah. laundered through regional ethnic differences and there's a whole complicated asset italy's not really one country is the short version yeah yeah because <laughs> Like immediately when they form their their very first committee, like even before Senegalia shows up, mm-hmm. you have uh, the one woman who's fantastic throughout the movie whose name escapes me. Uh, but immediately, like she volunteers for the committee, and a bunch of the guys start. Oh, we're gonna put a woman on the committee. That's ridiculous. Like, how can we how can we do that? And and she immediately responds, Oh, so we can work. We can pay into a collection, but we can't stand up for our rights. And they all are just like, Well, oh, I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah. She shut that shit down immediately, and she's on the committee for the rest of the the movie, and is one of the like strongest members of it. So yeah, yeah. She she in like two seconds had all the guys in that room doing the. That's true. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. That's I guess that's true. I mean, that's pretty true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the like you were saying, John, like all the languages, I thought that was really interesting because they're just like, because 
Because, you know, we're watching as we don't speak Italian. And so, like, the subtitles are on. And then this guy get, gets up in the middle of a meeting and starts talking. And there's suddenly no subtitles. And I was like, oh, are the subtitles broken? And then you they start talking about it. And you realize, oh, they're like, no one else. in. There's, like, two people mm-hmm. in the room. Because he's like from Bergamo, which I which uh, I was like looking it up is like uh, it's like north of Milan, uh, and just like mm. oh yeah, that's some dialect that that so many of the the people there didn't understand. But they that I I appreciated that they did they didn't just that was one of the things I thought was really interesting because I con- I thought it was interesting contrast, and this is just this isn't really to do with labor. This is I guess more to do with Italian history, but like that that guy who has that language barrier is not really treated as lesser. They're just like, we can't understand you. Whereas mm-hmm. like Salvatore, the guy from Sicily, you immediately, there's all of this like racist baggage that comes out when they start talking to him. So like, I, it, it's just, I thought it was an interesting like difference because like, yeah, most of the people can't understand the worker from Bergamo, but they just like find one or two people who does. And then he translates for them and they're like, oh yeah, that guy's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a big distinction where it, it did seem like the the guy from Bergamo, they were just like, oh, he has like a, a quirky fucked up accent slash dialect. Whereas the guy from Sicily, they were like, he is from another ass country. And that distinction was like very pronounced because the, 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 the Sicilian fellow, they called him all manner of things. They called him the Ethiopian. They called him Bedouin. They called him an Arab. Um, yeah. It was, it, there was a, like a 10 minute stint in the movie where it seemed like they were just trying to show every different way that like this could kind of manifest uh in an interpersonal setting yeah and it's wild to see like even some of the linguistic similarities to how we see that sort of thing today because there's a whole exchange between uh like one of the young workers and i think one of salvatore's daughters who they're they're just like oh all all our trouble in piedmont which is the state that turin is in all our trouble in piedmont started when you sicilians arrived i'm like oh wow you can just copy paste that into every racist conversation mm-hmm. you've ever heard <laughs> uh yeah it's it's wild like yeah, the 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 amount of of vitriol that is heaped upon salvatore and he ends up becoming like one of the biggest backers of the strike mm-hmm. and cause like he hasn't even done anything bad when the people are getting mad at him. Like he comes out to tell them, Hey, uh, I know y'all are going on strike, but I can't afford to not go on strike cause or to go on strike because I have nothing and I have to feed my family. So I want to come get permission not to strike, which is one of those things that seems goofy. And, but I really appreciated that the, the movie doesn't just take that perspective of either being like the workers, because this is something you'll sometimes see in more amateurish, like socialist media where it'll portray the workers as like all perfect. And that the, none of the, the, only the bosses are racist and only the bosses are sexist. And the workers all have, you know, perfect, incredible, progressive opinions. And he's like, no, there's people have heterogeneous consciousness. We know that. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I think that the workers, it sh- it's, it, they show, they show that, you know, there's, a, a consciousness that they don't have of this person's conditions right. when they go to like be like what the fuck are you doing and they bust down the door and they're like wait a minute this place is a hovel like yeah. you don't have anything yeah it it it's a real fast like tonal shift because it starts and it's kind of funny because Pautasso literally like kool-aid mans his way through the door mm-hmm. he doesn't open it mm-hmm. he literally kicks the door off its hinges although 
it doesn't really look like those hinges were doing a lot of work in the first place. Well, and credit to Salvatore, who just kind of gives him a stare and is like, did you come to give me what I asked for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and they are all fired up. Like, they're like, oh, we're going to rough this guy up. We're going to show him what for. And even Sinigalia, who's like, usually the guy, like, we don't need to do violence. We just need to stick together. He's like, yeah, we can't have people, like, scabbing on the strike. And then they go down and they see that it's like he's living in a dirt-floored shack that it, presumably he like put together himself just from like probably it's it'd be like if you were like living in a house made of pallets like today mm-hmm. like that's it, it, it's very similar and immediately the people are just like oh yeah <laughs> well we don't have a strike fund and so if we can't like if this is the conditions this guy's living and how can we tell him to make his family starve and and so they actually give him the permission and then he shows up and when he refuses to like be a spy for the bosses they just insult him and try to throw him out and he pulls a knife on the manager what a king and he has trouble getting the knife open but he's committed to it he throws <laughs> yeah. it on the floor and kicks it open cuz it's so old and rusty uh but yeah i mean I really appreciated that moment too, because like it really showed that this guy is just a product of his conditions. You know, he didn't want to have to go in there and work. He wanted to be able to be out on the strike, but when he's confronted by the bosses and they try to make him compromise his, you know, his ethics, his morals, he refuses in the most sincere way possible. I mean, I don't think pulling a knife on somebody can be interpreted as a lie. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another thing I really thought was interesting is when the workers are going, to the railroad to kind of ask yeah. if they're willing to do a, a solidarity strike with them mm-hmm. and uh and the 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 work the engineer worker or the railroad worker is sitting there on his break uh basically being like i don't see what's happening here because in the background the uh workers are stealing coal off of the train throwing it over a wall they're like basically stealing resources from these trains yeah they're stealing and, uh, railroad ties too yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 so this railroad worker is like uh, you know i just i can't do it and uh hey can you step out of the way a second and it, it the, the, the uh the loom worker uh, steps out of the way and the railroad worker can see the coal is being stolen. And he only uses that opportunity to spit out the door because he's like chewing tobacco or something like that. And smoking some insane to... thing, I think. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, the, the loom worker steps back in, in the way to continue the conversation. Railroad workers like, I didn't see shit. Yeah, well, and I he, just he, love that. he's like, why don't you strike with us in solidarity? And he's like, look, we're the railroad workers. If we strike, they send the cops out right away. They send the military after us. But we can help because you guys are stealing stuff and I don't see a damn thing. Also, interesting note, I've never seen so many people interact with tobacco in different ways in the same movie. <laughs> yeah. Big stogies, long, thin cigars, cigarettes on holders, weird pipes. It was a smorgasbord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and actually, like to that point, because like he talks about how he's like, yeah, if we if we went on strike, they're just gonna impress us into the army and then charge us with desertion and we'll be mm-hmm. in jail forever. He's like, so we can't do that. But that doesn't mean I got to tell them that you're stealing stuff. I don't give a shit about mm-hmm. that. <laughs> but yeah. like, also to that point, I think it does a re- again. Another thing the movie does really well is showing the way that the bosses are able to leverage the different organizations of power Mm -hmm. in the capitalist state. Because when their strike starts, the local army garrison is actually like, 
uh, some of the lower level soldiers like put together a little like soup kitchen sort of thing for the striking workers. And very quickly, the bosses and the owners of the factory complained to the like the generals and the local politicians and they, the lower level like soldiers are told, no, 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 you can't do that anymore. You got to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. Cause the bosses like told us we have to be on their side. Right. And that class solidarity actually holds all the way to the end when they're being told to stand in front of this factory. And some of them are just like, what the hell are we doing here? And And others are like, I don't know. We were just told to come and stand in front of the factory which yeah. I thought was interesting. Oh, it really explains why like military uh, training these days is so obsessed with like not just physical, but mental and like, you know, decision making conditioning, because like these are people who may be weaponized against the working classes who are themselves drawn from the working classes. Well, right. And that's like one of those big differences I think that we see like today, especially like in the United States, where you have the, you know, professionalized all volunteer military that was Mm -hmm. set up after Vietnam to try and neutralize anti-war protests. But this, you know, back in the, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, you're dealing with it pretty almost entirely uh, conscripts. So this is all mostly just like farmer's sons drawn from the area. So it's like, this could be like your neighbor's kid. So it's not some, it's not some totally detached relation. It's like, you know, all the people in the town that you're ordered mm-hmm. to repress. And like the, the soldiers, while they do, you know, end up firing into the crowd, it's not until like they re- they wait way longer than I think you would see people today. Uh, I mean, as evidenced by things like the, the George Floyd protests, I, I, there was also, there was a line I thought was really telling though, from, um, one of the low level soldiers who actually ends up getting engaged to, uh, one of the, the women workers at the mill during the strike, because he like leaves the barracks to give them food, even after they're ordered to stop doing that. And he starts like fraternizing with all the workers in the mill and he, they're telling him about the horrible conditions there. And he eventually during a conversation at one point says to think we farmers thought you factory workers were the lucky ones. Mm-hmm. I thought that was incredibly was like, telling. There's so much like in that one sentence right there, because that's the whole thing. Like in the early period when they were, you know, pulling all these rural workers into the cities, they're just like, yeah, you don't, you won't be stuck on a farm. You won't be like stuck doing this awful uh, agricultural labor. You can come be a worker in a factory. It's advanced. It'll be great. And then, you know, the workers actually show up. And it's like, oh, actually this is horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you could see the same thing with the Northern auto industry here in the United States. Uh, but I mean, also, I think it's really interesting because, uh, if you look back and you read like, you know, old Marx and Lenin and stuff, they're very concerned about tensions between the peasants and the, uh, industrial proletariat, which to somebody who, you know, is reading in today's incredibly, uh, striated and specialized and like endlessly tiered, you know, categories of different kinds of workers might seem a little bit perplexing, but during this time, it really was like, if you were somebody who could only sell their time or sell something they grew out of the ground, those were essentially your two options for the rest of your life. Right. I, I also think that like, in addition to the way the film like viewed education for the adult workers, Mm -hmm. the way that it portrayed it for the younger kids, I think is one of those, like that's probably one of the like sadder parts I think of the movie because they show that like, Omero, who, I mean, who's killed at the end of the movie and has to, I think he's what, probably like 14, you think, 15-ish 
Like, well, he's I, portrayed I as younger than he than he kind of looks. Because uh, I thought that he, he seemed like an actor that was probably like you know maybe eighteen, but you know how movies generally are in that regard, right? And because like he his whole family all, all like lives in one room <laughs> in like a tenement house that where they're like their bedrooms in air quotes are just they put they hang up like drying sheets as like a partition and so he has to go work to help support the family but they like put his younger brother into the town school and like there's a part there where like during the strike goes and the the kid's like i want to i hate school it's boring i want to work in the factory with you and then he just be like no you don't want to do that this Mm -hmm. shit sucks he's like you need to go to school so you can escape this and and that that's one of those things i'm like boy it's depressing that that same thing is still you like, how much do we hear that today from people? Are we, we yeah, I mean, we, with the justification of, of like, you know, lowering standards for, you know, child laborers and, and all of that, which we covered on, a, a, you know, an episode, a, you know, a couple episodes ago on the, the public episode, when we were talking about the, you know, intensification of child labor here in the U.S., well, and it's not just that we were making allowances for that to happen here in the U.S. It's also that we have like a, a social condition where the prevailing wisdom is the micro brand of like, right. if you don't get a kid working when he's 14, he's not going to want to work when he's 35. And it's like, <laughs> why don't you just cool your jets, Mr. Micro? Well, <laughs> like, well and also there's that that pervasive myth about education that is hung up there as like a carrot. For the working class, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, we admit maybe the conditions for you working schlubs suck. Yeah, okay, well, what we can't really entirely pretend that's not true. But if your kids go to college, they can escape that drudgery. So if you just make sure that you send your kids to college, that's it. Don't try and change the the conditions for you. That's that ship has sailed. You could how could how could that change? But just focus on having your kids go to school and then they can escape and get out of that situation. Well, and well, that it's, it's also like, feeds into the to the idea of creating a legacy, the individualism of creating a, like a family legacy that you are supposed to then hand down to the, you know, and, and uh, all of your economic prosperity is solely like confined to the family apparatus. I mean, that that is uh, that is one of, I guess, what you're, maybe kind of referencing at least in part there well there's like a progressive like uh status impoverishment of everybody below a certain level it's like my you know grandfather became a dirt farmer to escape being a field hand so that his son could grow up to be a worker in an auto plant so that i could go to college and get a job where i answer infuriating emails all day and it's like (laughs) we've come a long way but really we've gone nowhere at all you know what i mean relative to Mm -hmm. the overall condition Right, because that's what I mean is that, like, yeah, the situation's a little, like, it's different today. It's not, you know, 1890s Italy. The the breadth of possible jobs is very Mm -hmm. different. But there's still that incredibly insidious idea that you should foreclose on making anything better for yourself if you didn't go to college or whatever, mm-hmm. that that you should just give up on that. That's never going to happen. And that like the people, because there's a there's a there's a um, um, extreme meritocratic element to that sort of idea. That it's like, look, the people who didn't go to college, yeah, their situation sucks. But hey, that's on them. They should have gone to college. <laughs> and then we get mm-hmm. into this situation now where you have huge amounts of people going to college and finding, out, oh, that's not a silver bullet solution for anything. Also, those people who didn't go to college deserve to have a better life too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and 
again, siloed into individualism, uh, which is, you know, the capitalist mode of dividing people. Or yeah, a, and then, a capitalist mode of dividing people. And then we see at, like, the end where, like, you know, Romero had been working in, in, in this awful mill, 14-hour shifts at, at maybe, like, 15 or 16. And we see young kids when, when it shows the factory operating, like, as they would have been in, in a period-specific, you know, mill, like, I don't know, like, eight-year-old kids, like, going around lugging, like, baskets to pick up all the, like, scrap that falls out of the machines so that it could be thrown back into the, like, you know, can be reused or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so there's this whole concept that it's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to fight for this. We're going to create a better future for this one kid in the family. And then Omero's killed in the strike, and his younger brother has to leave school and go work in the factory, and we see that, like, right at the end. And, and, and to me, I'm just like, it, it, it really highlights that importance of it's like, look, by all means – if you want to send your kids to college, go for it. Not just to say that sending pe- that going to college is bad, but it's like, we need to fight here and now for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> like there is no reason to abandon the possibility of a better future for every one of the people in this movie. And that's like, I think one of the, the stronger messages I think I took away from it. I think yeah. it was really true to Gramsci in that it like, it is a very hopeful and inspiring movie, but it absolutely does not shy away from the, you know, trials, tribulations, horrors, setbacks, whatever you want to call them, that you're going to endure if you really come out and sincerely fight for a better future for yourself and everyone. Absolutely. Um, was there any other points that you wanted to make sure we hit before we moved on to the next movie? Uh, great music. Loved all the singing. Oh. Loved the singing. Yeah. That's something I was I, I I I don't know we might end up using the the theme song from this as like the end credits or, or something similar because that's someone like watching this but also watching uh, Mate One there there's so many movies from the that late 1800s early 1900s with all the like group worker songs that are so good like you don't even like again the one in this is like i don't speak italian i don't know what they're saying most of the time and still i'm just like yeah getting fucking fired up because <laughs> it's 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 like that's one of those things that because you know i know the iww had like the little red song bo- song mm-hmm. and stuff and like i know it's not really a part nearly as much as it used to be of labor organizing i'm just like i think we should bring that back like i feel yeah. like that's a a really good way to build solidarity that we don't use anymore. Yeah, well, like when I, they there's agreed, a couple of people who've made Starbucks songs, and that's about as far yeah. as I've seen. Yeah, well, when they like all agreed that they were going to go on strike and that they should go get groceries on credit right before they started striking, and yeah. then they had a song about keeping a lid on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. how cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's such a great movie. Yeah, so definitely uh, watch The Organizer. It's, pr- it's pretty cool. Um, the second film that we wanted to cover was uh, Western Gats, which uh, has a second name, which is, you know, Merku um, Tordachi uh, Malai. And uh, this is a, uh, I guess I'll, I'll just maybe do the summary because I think that this one had a lot of characteristics that we don't, quite see when we talk about a lot of mm-hmm. like labor um just because of the different material conditions that are happening where this movie is uh filmed and and what the mo- film is meant to be portrayed but um western gats is a sprawling drama showing the effects of the encroachment of modern capitalist commercialism in rural india the film follows rangasami uh aka rangu a laborer living in the foothills of western uh gat mount or of the western gat mountains 
uh, mountain range on the border between uh, Kerala and uh, Tamale Nadu, the states in southern India. Rangu works as a porter, carrying sacks of cardamom from the plantations of the mountains down to the foothills where they can be taken to market and sold. Uh, Rangu's dream is to save uh, enough money to buy his own piece of land and become a farmer, independent of any boss and no longer having to break his back, lugging enormous sacks of cardamoma through the mountains. Uh, he is friends with uh, Chaco, a communist organizer with CPIM from Kerala who works to unionize the workers in, uh, of the cardamom plantation, confronting the exploitative and abusive landowners. After multiple attempts to purchase his own land, including losing his savings when a cardamom sack he purchased literally falls off the cliff. And that, that scene is heartbreaking. Yeah, it's uh, hard to watch. Yeah, uh, Rangu is finally able to buy his own land by getting a loan from a local merchant. Uh, a torrential downpour destroys his crops, forcing Rango to accept another loan from a merchant for seed, fertilizer, and other necessities in order to replant his fields and, you know, kind of regain and basically start over from where he began. Uh, meanwhile, the landowner of the cardamom plantation locks out the workers, evicting them from their homes. Uh, he mocks... Uh, uh, the, the landowner mocks Chaco, telling him that he has bribed a senior CPI official to ensure that there will be no resistance. Chaco, in, enraged by the betrayal and the attack on the workers, rallies several workers, including Rangu, to confront the landowner. Finding him together with this, senior, this corrupt senior CPI official finalizing the bribe, Chaco kills the corrupt uh, CPI official with a machete, and the workers kill the landowner. They are all jailed for several years for murder, and upon getting out uh, of, uh, you know, upon getting out of jail, he, uh, you know, the area that he was previously in has changed drastically with uh, the building of new of a new road that has brought modern commerce to the region. Uh, also, with the person who he had been buying seeds from has become like an official land developer with an office, yeah. which is one of the final scenes in the in the movie. Uh, upon his release, the local merchant who he had loaned the supplies to in his debt uh, is like forces him to sign over his land. Basically, this this office that has been created is the a purpose of uh, repossessing these land from people who were you know formerly landless workers and then you know got their own land but then you know there's still this way of of you know expropriating that land from the workers uh you know rangu becomes a dispossessed worker once again and is forced to take a job as a security guard for a windmill construction or a windmill that was constructed on what had uh briefly been his land and then uh, as the movie kind of pans out on that final scene where he's sitting there in a chair guarding this this windmill this this basically it it zooms out to show like it's almost like a wind farm but what has happened is in many places where these land developers or these these land merchants have stolen this land from the workers they have put windmills in each one of these plots all over this valley kind of uh showing how how systemic this dispossession is yeah so this movie doesn't there's not as much like historical background for this one because 
that's one of the interesting things I do think with this one is it took me a minute to figure out. I was like, when is this taking place? <laughs> it, uh, it's like because what, five, ten years ago or something. Yeah, it's and it's 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 very recent, but it's one of the the area is so rural that the level of technology doesn't didn't make it very clear at the beginning. And one of the things that's important, I think, to to note about that is that. This movie, like as you were as you were saying, Lena, it portrays a level of social relations that we don't really see a lot in Western films because it shows how a lot of places still have semi-feudal conditions mm-hmm. that they're living in. Like like when when they show the early parts of the film, the relations in the, in the Western Gap Mountains with these plantations, like the landowners there are more or less like feudal lords of that area. They completely dominate the region. Um, and so this movie really portrays that process of primitive accumulation, which, you know, I think as Marxists, you know, you read about it in Capital or, or, or you hear about it in, in lectures and stuff, but it's something that in like Western Europe that happened in, you know, the 1600s, 1700s, early 1800s. And that had most, that process had mostly been completed, you know, well before our lifetimes, but that process is still going on. And especially in places in the global South. And, and this film really, really does a great job documenting that because it shows that like peasant relations are still very much alive in, in, in a lot of the rest of the world. And there's this sort of like level of contradiction and tension between those forces of the big landowners, but then also the proletarianizing impulses of the capitalists. And, and so like for some background specifically on this though, in India is like that process of primitive accumulation of, of traditional like ant- people living on their ancestral land has been the, the background like cause for so many major upheavals in India, like for instance, like the Naxal uprisings that occurred in India and that, you know, that are why the, the CPI Maoists are often referred to as Naxalites. Like that was based around extractivist corporations trying to force tribal populations off of their ancestral land so that it could be exploited for profit. And this isn't, you know, we're not seeing that with the same level of force in this movie, but it's more, it's a very similar process. And so like, this is, is very much a a relevant and ongoing issue that we still see all over the global South today. And it's not something that we see very often in like American or Western European films. Yeah. Well, and further to that point, I, I think what you're saying is really cogent and it's not just that like, we're still seeing these relations in place. It's that they're also like much more sophisticated than they used to be. Mm-hmm. They're not super like overtly violent. Like they might've been at other times during India's history. In fact, the people, the people who are doing the primitive accumulation here are often trying to cultivate an attitude of being very buddy, buddy with everybody that they're exploiting, right. talking about how like we all support each other. And like, I wouldn't be here without you and y- all of this pablum. Meanwhile, while trying to get hold of everybody's land and take away any opportunities they might have and relegate them to working a job where maybe you're a security guard for a windmill, for instance. Yeah. yeah, and like the the kind of debt traps that these people are creating for these these even the the people who will manage to retain some land or or buy some land that uh, person who is l- like leasing the seeds to Rangu and and his family for this process uh, is like no no we'll just put it on the books but also there is uh, a similar when Rangu is buying the land. Uh, mm-hmm. There is this kind of pride that Rangu has, where he, like the guy basically says, 
you know, we'll give this to you. I owe, you know, like, like John was saying, you know, there's this like, oh, I wouldn't be here without your father. I kind of owe it to you. You know, I should give you this. And Rangu is like, you know, I've got my pride. I will pay it back. Uh, which, you know, I guess was a little bit of a mistake, but I mean, maybe it just shows part of the culture and, uh, like just, just the way that that then gives the hold to these, these financiers and then, you know, the seeds also stacking up and that debt is really portrayed as something that is building and building and building, uh, which culminates in the repossession of the land in the first place. Yeah. And like that's that the way that this movie portrays that I think is brilliant because it at no point relies on like, you know, a, a cartoonishly evil mustache twirling, like, you know, single villain sitting in a room being like, aha, this is how I will steal all of the land from the, the farmers. Like it's because that cycle of debt and the way that land repossession goes around through that is a universal capitalist process that that is how like accumulation has occurred for capitalist agriculture since it started. Cause like one of the things like they talk about with England, like, you know, with the, the running of people off of their land so that they could turn it into sheep pasture for big landowners. A lot of that is usually portrayed with like the violent aspects the physically violent aspects of that. And that was a big part of it. But so much of this sort of dispossession, as you're saying, is like, it's done through debt more than it is through like guns. Like, uh, this is something that like, obviously this is a big problem in, in places where peasant agriculture is still a, a, a big mode of production. But I mean, even you can look at the U S like the fact that back in the twenties, there was a huge amount of African-American farmers who had their own land, who farmed their own land in the U S and today that number has been decimated because of exactly these sorts of cycles of debt, because fundamentally agriculture is a, somewhat risky prospect because you are relying on so many different natural conditions, weather, soil chemistry, and all of these different things that you can't necessarily control yourself. And so you are to a certain extent subject to the whims of, of chance and nature. And so being forced to borrow on credit and go into debt like this is essentially, especially for small peasants or like family farm owners, there's really no way to escape that. And it just, it, it is, makes it so easy for one bad season or, you know, even worse, two or three bad seasons or, or some big crisis that happens in your family to just put you in the hole that you'll never be able to climb out of. Yeah, and I think that another part of that is what is portrayed when uh, Rango is first buying the seeds is the notion that they need to be monocropping these yes. these places, which is really a product of you know international consolidation of, of what is tradable and the commodification of, of how people make a living because it's not like they can actually go out there and maybe like, I don't know, do land practices that might, you know, retain water, like uh, creating swales or any of these other like practices that are are known by a lot of these people to, you know, create more healthy and ecosystems. You know, that if you look at these vast amounts of lands, there's not even like tree wind breaks in in between them. They're just like vast flat pieces of land that are subject to extreme weather and uh, and 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 uh, poor soil conditions, and which also, you know 
when I first watched this movie a long time ago, I there was this scene where you saw fire going in the background, and we talked about this a little bit with the farmer's strike trying when the uh, state was trying to outlaw burning. But it was it's one of the practices used by people to refertilize the land and, and basically turn the land over very quickly so they can get two or or more crops in a single season. But, uh, you know, that practice is a product of that, you know, intensification and speeding up of labor and the, the need to constantly create profit, where in reality, you know, what could be done is you chop down all of those things you use that to mulch bed which actually helps retain water improve soil health and but but those practices are not as economically viable in the short term like they they are economically viable in the very long term but that doesn't help these people who need to pay off their debts as soon as possible so i mean i i thought that you know it's not exactly explicit but if you know a little bit about agriculture there are lots of practices that are forced on these workers to basically deplete the the soil in the same way that major agribusiness is is done here like in the US or even many other places in the world. Yeah, and and like Rango even says like when he's talking about why he wants to buy land, he's like he's like look, we can grow our own food on the land, we'll be self-sufficient and I can also grow other stuff and we can sell it. Like he has every intention of like doing a, a more sustainable multi-crop setup on his land. But when, when it get, it all gets damaged in that storm, he doesn't like have any other option really mm-hmm. than to accept the advice from the, the merchant and to grow cash crops, because it's like, well, you can go back to growing your subsistence stuff and never get out of the debt that you're going to go into to buy that, the, the seeds to replant everything. Or you can grow these cash crops and you'll make all this money. And it, cause, cause that's one of those things is I feel like, there are people who will look at monocropping in the global South and be like, they'll blame the farmers and they'll be like, well, how can they be so short-sighted? It's like, they don't have a choice. <laughs> like the, when you get into debt like that, you don't get to make those decisions. Like you mm-hmm. are forced into whatever situation will get you out of that debt. And, well, it's, and- it's like people are willing to give the quote unquote invisible hand of the market credit for everything until it does something really bad, which right. is most of the time. And then, like, when it does do this, they're just like, oh, those people are just rational actors who should have known better. And it's like, (laughs) should have known better altogether at the same time and acted in unison without coordinating? What are you talking about? Like, yeah. And (laughs) and the individual responsibility narrative. Yeah, exactly. And it was, and it, 90% of the time, the same people that are blaming them are the ones who were telling them to do monocropping in the first place Mm -hmm. because it was rational, because it made the most money. So, right. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's also really telling that, like, when the merchant is giving him this advice and giving him all of this business, you know, uh, know how, supposedly, at the same time, he's like, yeah, they're the product I have available right now. So, right. at another point, he's just trying to sell whatever he has, and he doesn't really care if Rangu fails or succeeds because right. he's either going to get he's either going to get money back from staking him on these seeds, or he's going to just steal the fucking land. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things I really liked about this movie was its portrayal of CPIM just mm-hmm. because like, you know, being in a living in, you know, an imperialist country that hasn't had, you know, the biggest 
communist movement, it's always different to see like movies from India where you have like Kerala, which has been governed by the communist party for decades and consistently, you know, has better standard of living and like a, a higher life expectancy and, and vastly better social services than most of the rest of, of India. And, but I appreciated that it, it's, again, it doesn't make the CPI organizers out to be some sort of like one dimensional caricature. Mm-hmm. They're neither portrayed as like, brilliant saviors who are going to do everything for these peasants by themselves, nor are they portrayed as like completely useless and bureaucratic and corrupt. It's like, no, you have Chaco, the like dedicated principled organizer who's out there like working with the, the agricultural laborers fighting back against the landowner. And then you also have a, a, a upper level official who it turns out is is very corrupt and then and then we get to see the way Chaco decides to deal with that which <laughs> i mean i don't know some people might not endorse but personally it seems like at least in the movie it was pretty effective so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely well and in addition to to not shying away from like very similar to the other film it, not shying away from like difficulty and contradiction and just the fact that like you know everybody's different even within a movement it also like it was a refreshing break from most Western films I've seen where there's a big emphasis on making sure that the pace never really slows down or or that when it does, it's like a, a, a calculated kind of like rest period before the next big action sequence or something. This film was very willing to kind of sit and do long form shots of characters interacting with their environment. And because of that, they were able to express subtleties about what these characters were going through that I think would get lost with the kind of pacing that we in the West, uh, maybe at this point, really have just come to expect from film and television. Uh, And it it, it let the music and the colors shine through. What I think exemplifies that the most is the tea houses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of the environments, when you see them in the cardamom fields, when you see them uh, picking up the sacks, when the guys are, are, are walking together and he hangs up the white sheet in the tree, like there were a lot of moments where, you know, maybe what was happening and what it signified wasn't immediately evident, but they gave you time to interpret yeah. it and to kind of digest it, which was really refreshing. Yeah. And I was also, I mean, like it's the, the most of the beginning of the film is actually just kind of highlighting the day to day, like workings mm-hmm. of a lot of these, these people. And then, uh, that is co- contrasted because the middle is a lot about Rangu and that struggle. And then the CPIM, uh, and it kind of, it gets away a little bit from that kind of in, like the showing of the peasant workers and such, um, but in the beginning, they they really show a lot of the like the way that these people work communally and and or how they communicate as like just people in the same area. And then in the end, when uh you know they're getting locked out, the they're like all they're they're all standing there. They know. Well, I guess I I I think that no, I'm I'm getting away from one of the points that I wanted to make because um I I think that uh when Rangu is walking through and talking about buying the land for the first time. Uh, everybody in town knows what he's doing. 
Like they, everybody, mm-hmm. like it doesn't matter. Every single person has communicated with each other. There isn't really secrets. It's like uh, it really got that kind of like small town vibe of of you know people are working and they know each other. And then you know in the and then I, to go back to what I was saying before, the towards the end when they're getting locked out, this they all come together and are standing there and they're like crying because they're ba- basically being denied their livelihood. And uh, I the although maybe you can explain this to me, the guy. I who said, you know, hey, please tease me, please make fun of me. I was a little confused on his position and what his position was because was he a laborer or was he like a, a supervisor? It seemed almost like he had like a supervisory role, but I wasn't quite sure. Uh, which scene was this? I'm I sorry. Think I don't remember what guy you're talking about, but I don't. I he wasn't in the movie a ton. He, when when they get locked out and the. And the and it's a bigger guy who is then you know crying and saying please tease me say you know three this for you know three hundred of that or whatever you know I I, I just didn't oh quite... right yeah yeah that guy um yeah who was getting mad at the yeah I think that guy was a supervisor yeah. um I'm because yeah he because we first meet him. When Rongo's like getting up to the plantation to pick stuff up to take down to the foothills, and like some kids have been screwing around with that guy, and he's like really mad, and he's like throwing fruit at them, <laughs> and they're picking up the fruit and running away. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that guy was a supervisor of some kind. He's not a landowner. That was very much yeah. clear. Um, yeah, that was an interesting. But, I think that that actually really, and my confusion there maybe almost exemplifies how my understanding of these relations of production are not very, you know, very, I don't have a huge understanding of this. And there were certain parts where I genuinely was confused as to like who was holding what position. Well, it's really interesting because in the West and in Western film and television, we're really used to seeing stuff signified by like whose office they're in or like right. who's wearing what kind of suit and uh, who's taking who out to dinner. And like seeing this take place in a, in a fairly remote rural agricultural setting, it's like a lot of these meetings between characters, whatever they're regarding, are happening where they're both leaning up against a wall or they meet under a tree somewhere. And it's kind of interesting because I found myself scrambling like, go to someone's office so I know who's who and what's what. <laughs> and But yeah. at, by the end of the movie, I was really glad that they hadn't because it, it really lends itself to a different way of understanding what's important and what's conveyed by communication uh, when it's not necessarily in the context that you expect. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things that I actually, th- I mean, to me that this film does in a way that I don't know that I've seen play out in many other movies is <laughs> so for folks, you, you know, if you go and lo- read like, you know, classic Marxist theory and like even like early stuff from Lenin, as you're saying, like John, a lot of the, the, the debate, like the tactics of actual, like, how are we going to make revolution? There was a lot of question and debate about like, where do peasants stand in this? Cause mm-hmm. like, you know, the, one of the fundamental things with Marxism is that, you know, the, the workers, the proletariat having been dispossessed of everything, but their labor therefore have nothing else to lose and become the revolutionary class. Whereas the peasants, not in any way oppressors, but as somebody who is tied to the land, does have something to lose. And so there was always, you know, all these arguments, okay, like how do we build the alliance between the workers and the peasants? And then you even had, you know, some people sometimes being like the peasants are reactionary. We shouldn't work with them and all this stuff. And this, I felt like it played out that debate in real time without ever like 
we're not going to lay this out to tell you. We're just going to show because it's like Rangu throughout the movie, like he's friends with Chaco, but he's not a communist. Like he's mm-hmm. not. He's not out there like the agricultural workers need to throw the landowners off the land and work it collectively, even if that is what, you know, the the goal for the CPI would be like he's friends with them. He likes that he's helping out the workers, but he's like, look, I, I want to be a, a landowner where I can be independent and I don't have to, you know, do it, which is a, a totally understandable position to mm-hmm. be in. If you're in that area for sure. And the movie never like, you know, it doesn't make fun of Rangu for wanting that. It doesn't portray him as being foolish or anything, but it just shows it's like, you have like in that sort of a rural area, you kind of have those two competing potential ideologies. You have the the peasant ideology, which is very individualist. It's very tied to like this idea of self-reliance and, and, and like the family as the economic unit rather than the community. And, and that's where Rangu is really going for what he's aiming at the whole movie. And then you see the workers the agricultural workers and in a few scenes, they're not focused on as much, but like when we see Chaco, like whenever like the landowner is being particularly shitty, I love like when he and Rangu are walking through the the forest to the, to the plantation (laughs) and Chaco like sees the, the cardamom plantation owner. He's just like, Oh, look out. There's a big leech in the forest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was very funny to me. I, I liked that. And then you see like the workers taking at a few points, like taking collective action. And so through the results of the movie, you see like what happens to Rangu. And it's like, he's, he's worked as hard as he possibly could, like harder than he should have had to, Mm -hmm. to get the money multiple times to buy this land. And it kept, keeps being lost in these awful ways. But then he finally gets the land and is shortly thereafter dispossessed of it by the capitalist system. And so I, I think it, the movie does a really great job of, of showing it's like, not that there's anything, you know, morally or intellectually wrong with these folks in rural areas wanting to be independent, wanting to be like farmers and have their own land, but just looking at the realities of like, what are the material forces that are pressing on, you know, workers and peasants in this society. And it's just like, you can you there's this i i drive for self-sufficiency and self-reliance is blocked by the capitalist mm-hmm. mode of production it's like it will not allow you to succeed in that way and the only way forward that's ever going to work is like you have to take away the power of those big landowners and it, it, it's just like so it's it it's i think doing a really good job of it's like this is why a communist view of these things why that collective power of the workers coming together and being like no it's like we're the ones who do all the work on this plantation that makes all this money all the big landowner guy all he does is stand around and be an asshole like he doesn't actually do anything it's like the plantation is productive. It makes a ton of money. It produces a ton of this spice that's very rare. And the workers are great at doing it. So the only thing that we have to change is to make the workers in charge of it. It's like, that, 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 that's all you would have to do. Not that that's, of course, mm-hmm. easy. Well, but but it, that, like, that position has a future for advanced socialist production, whereas like the individualist, like, petty production it's like not that there's anything wrong with it but the capitalist mode of production just puts a brick wall in front of the idea that you can keep going in that way any any way forward and it does it tells you all that without ever like hitting you over the head with it no and in fact it's it, there's a really I, I i think nuanced kind of allegorical subplot uh in the so-called crazy woman 
who's walking yeah. around shouting. And uh, I think if I'm remembering right, they said that like she and her husband had collected enough money that they were going to be able to be independent and, and live on their own. And then while they were traveling with it, her husband was killed by, was it an, an elephant? elephant? Yeah. yeah. By an elephant. Killed she's by an elephant. the elephants in the, in the scene that she shows up in. Yeah, and she's walking around and cursing the elephant. Like, she's totally lost it because, like Rangu, that family probably, you know, worked insanely hard in, 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 in for an insane amount of time to put themselves in a position where they could finally have a chance of, of breaking free, at least for themselves. And, you know, sometimes when there's a big enough catastrophe, unlike Rangu, you're not able to keep bouncing back, maybe diminished as you might be each time. But instead, it's just enough that it puts you through, you know, such a high stress level, such a, a hell of neuroses that it breaks your mind. And and I, I think, you know, compared to like you were saying, Dan, the potential for a real future that can come about with broad social organization, you know, sometimes the best that you can hope for when you're just trying to get yours is what happened to Rangu, where it's like you suffer a lot of scrapes and wounds. And at the end of the day, you still have a shitty job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this movie doesn't shy away from that kind of collective notion. I mean, the communists are portrayed very, not, I wouldn't say very heavily, but pretty significantly in this film. And um, Dan had kind of made a joke when in the chat room when he had first watched this that, uh, you know, it was clear that this movie was good because it was directed by Lenin. Uh, Bar- what is it? Baranthi. Barathi, uh, I think. Barathi. Uh, because you know, hey, there we go. We got we got Lenin Lenin directing films now. Yeah, I was just like, because I'm watching like the opening credits, and it's just like directed and screenplay by Lenin. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense. I mean, like, uh, how cool would it be to be from a region like Kerala, where Lenin is probably just viewed as like an ordinary, like hero of history, the same way somebody in the United States would be like, oh, your name's George, like George Washington, except George Washington right. fucking sucked ass. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just, just, this is not really tied into that, um, like that whole long spiel. But there's one thing that I, I I wanted to emphasize, like before we finished with this, is just because like I I've I've seen a few Indian movies, but not a ton, and I've certainly never seen one that focused on like this area mm-hmm. of southern India. And I I mean one of the things for that was the, one of the biggest takeaways for me, like aside from all of the political and social subtext and all of the really great themes in the movies, is just that. What an absolutely gorgeous area. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I'm just like, I could just watch, like, there's a lot of scenes, like, when they're going through the mountains. I'm like, I could just watch this on mute. Like, it's just like a, of one of those, like, 4K screensavers of, like, the most beautiful places in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really incredible. Was the, the colors that are present in the landscape, I was just blown away. Like, such a high level of contrast. I go out and I look at the fields and forests here in Michigan, and it's like green, 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 green. In this film, you're seeing, like, orange and red and purple and all of these. It was really, really fucking cool. My favorite was when they're taking the the overhead shot on the top of the hill where mm-hmm. there's that pond on the top of the hill. Oh yeah, uh, mm-hmm. that was super good. Um, I I I mean, we could go over so many parts of this movie. I mean, I think one last thing that I wanted to bring up in the kind of 
uh, you know, idea of the the plight of the workers is the one worker who was so proud of having you know done the boss a favor uh, that you know the, his boss was you know in in dire straits and he helped them out and he's bragging about this and then you know literally by the time he's done telling this story he begins coughing and in the, you know they finally zoom back in on him and he's like coughing up blood and they everybody all of the workers stop and and like unload his bag and start carrying some of that cardamom for the, for him and uh and then later in the film i mean i think that it kind of the way that it was portrayed to me is this this worker uh w- did make it that time but then you know in a different trip because the bag was full in the second one he basically collapsed and died while walking on this path and uh and i thought that that right there kind of uh I don't know. It was it was very uh, impactful when it comes to the imagery of how these workers are supposed to do this sort of work, uh, and it goes back to a, a question for Rangu in one of the first scenes when he's walking. When the the guy that he's walking with, he says, "You know, how do you cover this distance daily?" And Rangu says, "I have no other choice." Yeah. Well, and it's and it's that's another one of those pieces that I think is a really great way of illustrating, like as you're saying, like that guy, like was so proud of how hard he worked for the boss and like how much they're just like, this guy is a model worker. And it's just like, and then he worked himself to death. And did we ever hear anything from the landowner about, Oh, I can't believe this horrible thing happened to my friend, this worker who actually helped me out and made me all this money. He's like, no, he doesn't like, they don't, they're, they just want to get out of the workers whatever they can get out of them. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and if that drives them to an early grave, so be it. Yeah. And like, that's one of the things that I thought was so why I thought like the film's dedication was so appropriate and, and effective that where, you know, you get to the final scene and it's zoomed out of Rangu being forced to sit in a shitty folding chair in the middle of the field that used to be his farm and then it you know cuts to black and with some text dedicated to the landless labor class across the world which i want to see more movies with that sort of dedication <laughs> yeah i was really glad that wasn't the part where uh while i was watching the film the director of sales from my job came up behind me and asked what do you watch <laughs> <laughs> i was like uh, yeah, cuz it was just a normal it was a it was a i guess relatively unremarkable part of the movie and i was like it's an Indian movie about cardamom farmers. <laughs> not a lie. Like, Let's not get into it. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, with that, I think that we'll wrap here. And I want to thank everybody who supports the show. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we're able to do these Patreon episodes. And so, you know, also if you're not in the Discord, which I assume a lot of you are, but if you're not, jump in the Discord. We have discussions with people all the time. You can let us know what you think of the movie. I mean, uh, this movie that we just covered is on Netflix. The other one is part of the, uh, the, the organizer is part of the Criterion Collection. Uh, if you're trying to watch them yourself, um, you know, they're also available in uh, in in pirate ships. Uh, <laughs> I, although actually, I no, th- that's not true because uh, because the uh, Western Gats was actually not very available on on some of those more uh, secret places. Oh, yeah, I, I, I have watched um, I watched uh, the Western Gats on Netflix and then I watched the um, organizer on my 14 day free trial subscription to the Criterion Collection yeah, channel we actually on my did Roku that box. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we did okay. that too. I, 
I do also think there are versions of the organizer on uh, YouTube, but oh, okay. I do not know if they have English subtitles, I yeah. believe, because I think they're in like other languages. So I, I think one's in Spanish, though. So if you speak Spanish, I think there's a Spanish version on yeah, YouTube. Or, I mean, you could just rock the auto-translate. As long as there's subtitles in one language, there are janky subtitles in every language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, uh, thank you all for supporting the show. And, uh, you know, follow us in all the places. You can, you know, tell your friends about our show and encourage them to, you know, if they if they like movies, maybe check out check us out for that reason. Or if they are into organizing, we have lots of other content that you can suggest to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, as always, labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity, solidarity, everybody. <laughs> Oh,